Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. As Donald Trump's transition from the election to the White House continues, questions about his business dealings and those of his children continue to swirl. To help us sort through the issues and to talk about his new report on open government, I'm joined in the Brookings Podcast Network studio by Ambassador Norm Eisen. He is a visiting fellow here at Brookings and served as U.S. Ambassador to the Czech Republic from 2011 to 2014. Before that, he was Special Counsel and Chief Ethics Advisor to President Obama, where he helped lead the Obama administration's initiatives on government ethics, lobbying regulation, and open government. He was also co-founder of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Finally, he is the co-author, along with scholar Vanessa Williamson, of a new report titled The Impact of Open Government, Assessing the Evidence, which you can find on our website, brookings.edu. Stay tuned in this episode to hear from Rebecca Winthrop on how education systems should evolve in the digital age, and also part two of a discussion with author Greg Clark on globally aspirational cities. Norm, welcome to the program. Thank you, Fred. Very happy to be here. I'm glad that you're here. What you have to talk about couldn't be more timely. Let's talk about the background on conflicts of interest in the White House and the administration. I and mean, we'll get to Trump specifics in a few minutes. But what is the historical origin of conflict of interest laws? Well, since the time of the founders of our nation, uh, the framers of our Constitution, the Federalist Papers, we've been worried that our public officials will serve the special interests instead of serving the public interest. Uh, It's really one of the core concerns uh, in a democracy. Uh, The Federalist points out the susceptibility of leaders in uh, democratic forms of government, including in republics, to corruption, and in particular, to foreign corruption. And in Mm -hmm. fact, until recent weeks, most Americans didn't realize it, but there's actually a conflict of interest law that is written in to the U.S. Constitution. It's called the Emoluments Clause, and it uh, forbids, for the exact reason we're discussing, forbids uh, American presidents and other uh, federal officials from taking uh, payments, benefits, anything of value from foreign sovereigns because of this clash between special interests and the public interest that is at the core of our national uh, philosophy. We want to avoid the special interest and serve the public interest. Emoluments, it's one of those archaic words in our constitution that we never thought we'd have to pay attention to, and yet here we are. Think of it as uh, the 20th century, 21st century translation, goodies. Okay. It's a fancy way of saying goodies. Anything that has value is an emolument, and you can't get anything of value from a foreign sovereign if you're the president. So in recent presidential history, what have other presidents, presidents-elect done to avoid conflicts of interest as they prepare to assume the presidency? Fred, the history of the United States is the history of escalating efforts to perfect this idea of serving the public interest, if you're a public official, above all the president, and uh, avoiding special interests. An important step forward in the post-Watergate period was the 1978 Ethics in Government Act. And uh, that act uh, codified and perfected the idea of the blind trust And every president since 1978 has used a blind trust or an equivalent to address the appearance or the reality of this clash between their own personal interests and their obligation to serve the public interest. The way it works is uh, simple. You uh, sign your interests over to an independent trustee, not a family member. 
that trustee then liquidates the interests, takes the money, and buys new investments, hiding those investments behind a wall of blindness so that the president or other public official who's using the trust doesn't know what their financial interests are and so can't be influenced. Uh, it's not legally required for presidents to do a blind trust. Obviously, presidents have to follow the constitutional conflict rules. They don't have to do it by doing a blind trust. But it makes sense, and that's why every president for the past four decades since the enactment of the Ethics in Government Act 1978 has done a blind trust or the equivalent. And Mr. Trump tweeted recently, quote, the law is totally on my side, meaning the president can't have a conflict of interest. How did you react to that? Like most of the things that Mr. Trump says, it's half true at best. The um, law is not totally on his side. Uh, obviously, the Constitution is the highest law of the land. It has an original American conflicts law in it. Uh, but there are many other laws that are implicated by conflicts concerns. And I think that he's recognized that, that there's an array of criminal laws, an array of gift laws, there's regulations that apply to him, there are disclosures that he needs to make, there's potential civil litigation, there's congressional action that could address his conflicts. I think he recognized that if you read closely in his recent tweet storm where he announced on December 15th there'll be a press conference that will set forth his solution. He said he's doing this to address a visual conflict. So that's a term of art. Those must have been the foremost heavily lawyered tweets in the history of Donald Trump's overactive Twitter account. I think what he's alluding to is that there can be both apparent and real conflicts. And if you read that closely, saying, you know, I recognize that I have an apparent conflict of interest. That's a big step forward. He's recognizing that he has a conflict. He needs to address it. I just hope he addresses it the right way with a true blind trust or equivalent. I want to go into that a little bit more in a second here. But first, Norm, can you give uh, listeners kind of a concrete example of how a conflict of interest could play out in a Trump presidency. Now, the details of some of these issues are pretty well known. You've talked about it a lot with Mr. Trump and his children as well. But what does it mean for a President Trump to have, a, uh, say, a business interest in a hotel in Mumbai or in Argentina or even here in Washington, D.C.? Well, the significance in practical terms, real everyday terms of his conflicts, start with the hotel in D.C. He's going to be appointing a new GSA, General Services Administration, administrator. That person is going to be responsible for the lease under which Mr. Trump and his businesses, his kids, uh, hold the Trump Hotel a few blocks from the White House. So in essence, uh, Mr. Trump's going to be on both sides of that lease, both as the lessee and as the person ultimately responsible for the lessor. And the lease is very unusual, Fred, because it requires regular negotiations to update the rent based on performance figures. Well, how on earth, consciously or otherwise, can somebody who's been appointed and chosen by Mr. Trump, answerable to Mr. Trump, really do an arm's length negotiation? But the extent of the problem goes beyond just the conflicts relating to the hotel. When he sets his domestic policy, is he going to be – he said he wants to fix Dodd-Frank. 
Is he saying that because he really believes the law is too tough on the banking sector because he wants to curry favor to get better terms on the loans he has as a real estate investor, heavily leveraged? Uh, Which is it? It's that clash, the historic clash that the framers were so worried about. When he appoints his chosen, he's already chosen, when confirms his attorney general, uh, his largest lender, Deutsche Bank, is under investigation by the Justice Department. Is he choosing personnel, the AG and the people who will be working at the sub-cabinet level, uh, with an eye towards enforcing the laws of the United States or giving Deutsche Bank a break? And it affects his foreign policy, too. He's got an enormous loan from the Bank of China, according to the media. Is his uh, saber-rattling of China because he thinks we need a more muscular foreign policy in the interests of the United States? Or is it because he wants to, as he's described in his books, he wants to take a tough stance as he comes to the negotiating table for his own financial interests? As long as he fails to set up as every president has done for four decades, a true blind trust or the equivalent, these questions are going to swirl around. And that's not healthy for our democracy. It's not healthy for uh, the White House. And it's no good for him personally either. So he should do the right thing and divest. You and Richard Painter, who was ethics counselor to President Bush, recently called for the Electoral College to reject Mr. Trump on December 19th, if by that date he continues to retain ownership in his business interests. Why is this question of ownership in the context of a blind trust so important? I want to be very precise on the Electoral College issue. What Painter and I are attempting to sort out, and of course we're all operating in real time, are what the responsibilities of the electors are. And our uh, position is that we hope Mr. Trump will announce the right thing on December 15th. It's not a coincidence, I think, that he's making this announcement before the Electoral College meets. Um, If he doesn't do the right thing and he has this flow of unconstitutional foreign goodies, the emoluments goodie bag is uh, overflowing, then electors need to search their consciences and determine, should you vote for a man in the Electoral College who's going to be behaving unconstitutionally from day one, indeed, from minute number one, any more than you would vote for somebody who didn't meet the constitutionally required age for the president or the uh, natural-born citizen requirement. In terms of what we hope Mr. Trump does, I do think that uh, if he's able to set up uh, an independent trustee, everybody will uh, breathe a deep sigh of relief. But I wouldn't go so far as to tell electors what they should do just to search their own consciences. So if he puts his business operations into a blind trust, what does he need to do? What do his children need to do who are so involved in Trump enterprises? Well, for Mr. Trump, what he needs to do first and foremost is focus on the business of the United States, not the business of the Trump organization. So his involvement should end the moment he signs these interests and operational responsibilities over to a respected independent trustee. And really, the search for the right independent trustee should be occupying him as profoundly as the search for any cabinet member now. And then it will be up to the trustee to untangle issues like, well, the children have an interest in these businesses. Is it appropriate or not for the children to exit? 
should we do an LBO? What should be the role of the kids of Mr. Trump's executives in uh, LBO or leverage buyout? Should we bring private equity in? Should we do an IPO? Those issues really are, I think, for the trustee and for the children to discuss with the trustee, not for Mr. Trump. Last question about the kind of the current events before we move on to your open government report. On January 20th, Mr. Trump will take the oath of office and become the 45th president of the United States. In the scenario where he retains a lot of these business interests, where his blind trust maybe isn't so blind, and he continues to give the appearance, at least, of having conflicts of interest with his businesses and his children with the businesses, what responses, what remedies are appropriate after he becomes president? Well, the first place where we're already seeing a great deal of ferment is in the court of public opinion. Folks are concerned about this. A majority plus of Americans do think that he ought to divest from his businesses. They're worried about excessive entanglements and conflicts in the businesses. So that'll continue, and I don't think that's going away. We saw this weekend with the announcement of the conversation with the Taiwanese. It was very quickly followed by press about a prospective Trump business deal in Taiwan. And you can't minimize the overhang of those kinds of conflicts on the day in, day out of the Trump presidency, particularly where you have a president who won less than half of the popular vote. His opponent has, I believe, over 2 million more 2.7 votes. It's already up to 2.7. I've been so busy studying my pocket constitution, I lost track of the last 700,000 votes that had come in. So there's a role for the president. The, the, The court of public opinion is not to be minimized because the president needs to consolidate the support of those who voted for him and those who didn't. Uh, But beyond that, in terms of the remedies, I do think you're going to see very quickly uh, folks turning attention to uh, what litigation remedies already exist without uh, getting too far into hypotheticals. Uh, We know for a fact that a lot of very smart people are thinking now about whether, for example, competitors who are injured by these unconstitutional foreign goodies might have a cause of action. And then beyond that, of course, you do have the risk, and I hope it doesn't come to pass, but you do have always the risk of criminal investigations because if Mr. Trump stays involved in his businesses, if his kids continue to be straddling the line between their businesses and government sitting in on meetings and calls, and you're going to run the risk of people wrongly or correctly saying that's a signal that American government decisions are for sale, and you're going to start getting bids. We call them quid pro quos, offers. And, you know, it just takes one careless or ill-advised stumble on the part of uh, somebody who purports to represent or does represent, have a relationship with the president, uh, suddenly to have criminal allegations and criminal investigations. I hope it won't come to pass, but it's a big risk. And if I were advising Mr. Trump, I would tell him that's uh, we are on very dangerous turf. That's much worse than a piece of civil litigation. I think Congress is another area, not just the I word. It's premature, although I understand why people are upset because they say, wait a minute, he's going to be getting these foreign government emoluments likely from day one if he doesn't do a true blind trust. We'll have a president who's behaving unconstitutionally on his first day in office. I understand that, but the political reality is 
Republican-controlled Congress, you're unlikely to. It's going to take a lot before you get into impeachment territory. But here's what won't take a lot. As soon as there's a first scandal, you're going to have the control of the Senate, which hangs just by two or three votes. Some of those Republicans are going to feel the political pressure and they're going to join with the Democratic caucus in the Senate. And it doesn't take many of them to sign a letter demanding information, to call for a hearing, to ask for or demand documents or witnesses. We've seen that happen over and over again in American history, including recent history, where members of your own party turn on you because come back around to the court of public opinion. So uh, so that's another place where I would be looking for uh, some remedies if Mr. Trump doesn't do a blind trust. I'll bring you back to my conversation with Norm Eisen in a minute. But first, time for a quick break to hear senior fellow Rebecca Winthrop on her contribution to the 11 Global Debate Series, a paper on how education systems can provide the skills children need in the digital age. My name is Rebecca Winthrop. I am a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. I'm also the director of the Center for Universal Education. I work on global education, meaning children and youth around the world. How can we get them a high-quality education and make sure they have the skills they need to be successful in their lives and their livelihoods? And I wrote about skills in the digital age. How should education systems evolve? This piece is really looking very broadly about what type of competencies and capabilities do kids need to develop to be well-prepared for the new world they will inherit, given rapid technological change, given rapid global interconnectedness, and persistent complicated problems such as climate change or global migration, all sorts of things that young people will have to solve when they become adults. And really, I'm very curious and do a lot of research around what are the types of educational experiences we need to give young kids so that they can grow up and be collaborative problem solvers, be creative, as well as have a good grounding in the academic disciplines so that they can help our society and world develop in a way that is inclusive and constructive and they can continue to adapt to the things that life throw them. In terms of what education systems need to think about and how we need to think about education, there's a couple of things that are really important that I wrote about in my piece. One is that it's really key for education to think about the breadth of skills that are needed. And that means that we need to continue to focus on academic subjects, but we cannot make academic disciplines the sole focus of education systems. We need to expand our look at how children are developing skills in things like interpersonal understanding, creativity, innovation, teamwork, a whole wide range of things that are really important for a changing world we live in currently and they will certainly inherit. A second thing that we think is really, really important is that education systems need to focus on delivering education in a different way in order to get this breadth of skills. It needs to be an education that is dynamic and relevant and applied. For example, you don't learn how to be a good team member and how to work collectively to solve a problem by just studying for a math test by yourself and then taking a test. 
you can learn math in a way where you work together in teams on a project, for example, that builds both teamwork skills as well as math literacy, as well as sort of a knowledge of how to apply math concepts. So that's the type of shift we're talking about. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we need education systems that are inclusive and adaptive ecosystems. We talk a lot about young people needing to adapt to a changing world. Education systems themselves need to also adapt along with that. They need to be inclusive, meaning they need to include a wide range of skills and competencies, as well as a wide range of kids need to benefit within education systems. And they also need to be inclusive in that many different actors in society can help contribute to educating kids. Teachers are front and center and central, but other groups also can help community members, libraries, children's museums, etc. So that is ultimately what we're interested in thinking about how to make that come about. You can download and read all of the 11 Global Debates papers on our website at brookings.edu slash 11 Global Debates. And now back to my conversation with Norm Eisen. Well, Norm, like so many Brookings fellows, you are both a practitioner of public policy and also a scholar. And to that we turn, along with Vanessa Williamson, who is a fellow in governance studies, you are the co-author of a new a report called The Impact of Open Government Assessing the Evidence. And you've worked in open government issues for a long time. So let's talk about this report for a little bit. First of all, what is open government? Uh, Fred, it's been very exciting for me in my career since I uh, co-founded Crew uh, immediately after the 2000 election, the Bush v. Gore election, led me to co-found the government watchdog group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, which now has been in uh, in operation for um, about 15 years. When I co-founded Crew all those years ago, the principal way that you got government to open up so that uh, citizens and press and think tanks and uh, others could see what was happening inside of government was through the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, where you would file a request, often you'd have to litigate to get government to give up documents. We've had a revolution in open government since then uh, because of the development of the new tools of the internet, of social media, and of various uh, forms of participation in government. Uh, We've seen an explosion of ways that government opens up its operations to the world. It really falls into three categories. There's the field of transparency, where government shows people uh, what's going on. Uh, For example, the open government reform that I'm proudest of from my White House years as President Obama's ethics czar uh, is the White House visitor records, where you have millions and millions of uh, records of everybody who comes and goes to the White House now on the internet. You couldn't have done that before the prevalence of the internet. And the two other parts of open government are accountability. This is the area where you try to uh, keep government officials from having conflicts, from going wrong, and also of participation, where you try to open government up and let the public become more engaged and involved and active in government decision-making. So that's the field of open government, and it's vibrant and it's booming. I was proud in the White House to help develop not only domestic open government initiatives, but also the international open government partnership. And in fact, I'll be going to the OGP summit and presenting our new report demonstrating 
Vanessa and I studied almost 800 evaluations that have been done of uh, these programs all over the world to figure out, do they do any good? Besides getting the information online, do they actually help people's lives? Do Mm -hmm. they reduce infant mortality? Do they increase maternal health? Do they improve school attendance? Do they reduce corruption? The things that people really care about. So I just want to be clear uh, for listeners that open government is more than just e-government, right? Yes, uh, much, much broader than e-government. And in fact, the two are, there are some e-government programs that are not open government programs at all if you're simply allowing people to use e-government to apply, say, for uh, permits or for benefits. That's not really – doesn't really let the people in and see what's going on in government or – participate in it. or So uh, open government is much broader than that. And it really is, ultimately, if you think about it, it's really the next step in the development of our democracy because it lets citizens not only know what's happening, but be involved and change what's happening in government. You have this very interesting quote in the report, and I'd like to read it and ask you just to kind of talk about that and explain it. It's this, open government initiatives need to be compatible with individuals economies of information processing and behavioral limitations. And in particular, they need to take seriously the priorities of those expected to respond to the information being made available to them. We found, as we read these hundreds and hundreds of studies, that one of the things that identified a successful open government program, and the thing we were looking for was hard evidence, rigorous empirical evidence, that a particular program actually led to good outcomes. So uh, we came up with six criteria that policymakers should follow when they design these programs. I wish I'd had these six criteria when I was working on these programs eight years ago in the Obama transition in the Obama White House. And in some ways, the most important of them, I'd put a sharp point on it, the quote does it well. The most important of those criteria is when you start to design the program, Think about the people that you are trying to help. Who are the citizens that you want to reach with this information? What can they do with it? How can it make a difference in their lives? So to take the example again of the White House visitor records, we wanted all Americans to see who was coming and going, but we really wanted the media to be able to help us with our job of uh, making sure that Nobody in the White House was having meetings they shouldn't be having. So it's a kind of crowdsourcing, and we had that in mind. And I think it's been a success in terms of becoming a standard part of the reporting, and I very much hope the new administration will keep it. So we're looking for those kinds of programs, and we found them, Fred. I was so excited to see all over the world, and they don't always get the attention that they need. But everywhere you go, you find, while there's some programs that don't work as well, you find that there are programs that are helping moms when they need to uh, worry about their uh, maternal health as they're expecting kids. When the kids are born, you know, finding out who is a good doctor to go to, is the water supply healthy, uh, what medicines should we use, all that information can be put on the internet in a way that's useful. Then as the kids grow up a little bit, the schools, there's a wonderful study in India in which teaching quality and student outcomes improved just by the simple act of putting a webcam in the classroom 
simple and elegant, very inexpensive. So the parents could see if the teachers were showing up that day or not and what was going on in the classroom. The kids' performance went through the roof. So we're looking for examples like that where open government makes a difference in people's everyday lives around the world, as well as the big ticket items like the Freedom of Information mm-hmm. Act or the White House Visitor Records. And you and Vanessa looked at over 800 evaluations. Are you, so you're looking at national level, state level, local. What kinds of governments are you looking at? We look at them all. Some of the most important interventions are on the local level, and that's not only around the world, it's in the United States too. Mm -hmm. There's really some dramatic, vibrant innovations. I think it's Brandeis who referred to the states as the little laboratories of democracy. And they're the little laboratories of open government too. But the same is true around the world. There are also wonderful national level programs. So we looked at studies at every different level. You mentioned that you're going to the International Open Government Partnership meeting soon. Yes. What are the kinds of activities are you and Vanessa going to be undertaking to talk about this report? Who are you going to talk to? Well, I do feel a little bit like a proud papa or grandfather because one of the last things I worked on when I was in the White House with some very distinguished colleagues, Samantha Power, who's now the UN ambassador, Cass Sunstein, who's one of our most brilliant scholars of law and economics, Dr. Jeremy Weinstein, who's at Stanford, a scholar of open government, was this international open government partnership where up now about 70 countries have joined, and they all agree to do voluntary country action plans to make their governments more open. There's an annual summit. I'm very flattered that OGP has invited me to present this paper at their annual summit in Paris. While I'm there, by the way, I'll also be participating in another panel on open government and lobbying reforms around the world. That's another issue I worked on in the White House. In terms of what comes next, uh, Vanessa and I, Vanessa is a great colleague, a Harvard PhD, so it is the practitioner-scholar combination. Um, Vanessa and I have laid out an agenda for research, and we think that the issues that are most important to research are not so much the technical ones, as my indie example shows. Sometimes it's the simplest technology that works the best. But this question that you started with, Fred, how do we make these programs better fit with the day-in, day-out of people's lives and what they really care about. That's why I got into this governance gig when uh, I was flattered that my law school classmate, then-Senator Obama, asked me if I would help on his campaign because uh, I had a very comfortable life as a law firm partner, but I wanted to do more to pay back of the debt of gratitude that I owe to the United States, which took me and my family in, my refugee parents accepted by the United States. So Vanessa and I have laid out a research agenda focused around these questions of how can open government do more to help people's real lives. Well, Norm, I want to thank you very much for sharing your time and expertise today on this topic. Fred, it's been a pleasure to be with you as a fan of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast. It's a treat to be on. Thanks very much. You can learn more about Ambassador Norm Eisen and his work on open government and ethics on our website, brookings.edu. Be sure to find the report he co-authored with Vanessa Williamson, The Impact of Open Government, Assessing the Evidence. Finally today, 
part two of my colleague Bill Finan's discussion with Greg Clark, author of the new Brookings book, Global Cities, A Short History. In part one of this conversation, which we released on November 4, Clark explained what makes a global city from antiquity to the present. Here he is talking about specific modern global cities, including Singapore, Vienna, and San Diego. And we'll come to the present now, where you talk about globally aspirational cities, which I, I think is an incredible phrase. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and give us some examples? Well, the the current moment, uh, Bill, is, is really, I think, um, characterized by uh, some very big phenomena. Firstly, obviously, we're living through a new generation of technologies that, that none of us uh, really have been able to anticipate in the past and whose impact is going to be exponential. So everything, of course, from life sciences and biotechnology to robotics to virtual reality. But all of these are underpinned by really strong data and software systems. And so what has emerged, I think, in this current period is that technology has enabled globalization to increase, but it's also enabled different kinds of cities to participate in global exchange processes. So when we look at the world today, rather than looking for the five or six world cities that we might have looked for 20 years ago, we might have observed that, you know, London and New York and Paris were the global cities of their day. Mm -hmm. What we see, I think, instead is a, is a bifurcation, if you like, a huge growth, but also a diversification and segmentation of the kinds of cities that we find. So we observe three broad types, but there are many more. So one would be the established world cities, the ones that we already know, where you have the New Yorks, the Hong Kongs, Tokyos, Singapore, Paris and London, the big six as we call them, but rapidly being joined by other cities like uh, Sydney, uh, Toronto, Seoul, perhaps Chicago, cities which are headquarters cities uh, trying to be the global hub for particular kinds of very large firms. Their finance and business service locations, they service the global economy where they meet its capital needs, they meet its needs for expertise in law, accounting, advertising and all of those things. But each of those cities in their own way is also becoming a technological city, um, not just because technology is interrupting the way headquarters and those services work, but because technology is itself becoming mm -hmm. a traded industry. So you've got that group. You've got the second group, which are what we call the emerging world cities. These are the, uh, the leading cities uh, in the fastest growing large nations. So uh, Shanghai and Beijing, Mumbai and Delhi, Sao Paulo, uh, many other of these large cities, Mexico City and, and Buenos Aires, I guess we'd put in there, Lagos in the longer term, Bangkok, Manila and others. These great huge cities, many of them over 10 million, some of them over 20 million people. And global in scope too. Global in scope. Yeah. Uh, leading nations that are becoming rapidly globalized and integrated. And therefore, the role of these cities is to be kind of champions for their nations in the global sphere. And then, of course, we observe a third group that we call the, the new global cities, if you like. These are the cities that are smaller in size, but willing and able 
to specialise in one or two very high-value industries where technology has enabled them, in a sense, to choose a wider range of locations. So you see this, for example, in Seattle and Vancouver and San Diego, cities that are very well known in North America, but also in Tel Aviv and in Melbourne and Brisbane. Uh, we see these kinds of cities emerging in, in Cape Town, in, in Santiago de Chile, where you have this specialisation in these technologically enabled sectors where uh, there's a drive for a high quality of life on behalf of the, the talented people who work in those sectors. And you have this equation of leadership in a small number of sectors combined with high quality of life, combined with what we might call a, a manageable metropolis, a city that never quite gets so big that it gets uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And of course, these kinds of cities, we see many, many more of them, and there could be 50 or 60 or 70 of them by the time this cycle's complete. Talk about a few cities as examples. Uh, Singapore. Well, Singapore is a fascinating city for so many uh, places around the world that are trying to have high quality urbanization because it's that classic example of rags to riches, a city that in 1964 was an impoverished former colony, expelled by Malaysia, thinking about what to do next, problems of salty water, poor people with poor health. And yet, somehow, 50 years later, this has emerged of one of the great global cities of our time. And it's a really good example of proactive government, of course, but it's a great example of moving deliberately through cycles and waves of development. So beginning with health and education and desalination, sorting out the water problem, and then gradually moving through one cycle of light manufacturing into another cycle of modern manufacturing, then into a cycle of information and communication technologies, then into financial services, and then into life sciences, biosciences, spatial science, Singapore has somehow figured out how to deliberately climb the global value chain. And it's done it in a way where technology and innovation have been important, but trade and geopolitical opportunity have been at the heart of that because Singapore has positioned itself as the city in ASEAN that can serve the whole of the Asian market using what used to be called Western standards of business, but it's now just called world-class standards. And its diverse entrepreneurial population was, of course, a key part of that, not to mention the fact that its world-class airport is favoured by many. So if you think about our five ingredients... Singapore's really there. Let's skip across the globe then to Vienna as another example. Well, Vienna, of course, a really interesting city because Vienna was, in a certain sense, the capital of the most important empire in the world back in the 1800s when the Austro-Hungarian Empire was flourishing. But Vienna is a, is a story of, of great sadness because, of course, this cosmopolitan city with its wonderful... Uh, intellectual population, its huge Jewish population, its its population of musicians and artists and the original psychologists and Freud and Marx and everyone else who came out of Vienna. Um, that's a city that kind of lost its way, of course, during the Second World War and the, the Third Reich with the the annihilation and, and the loss of its intelligentsia, its Jewish population. And after the Second World War, the Jewish, uh, the, the Viennese population sort of retreated into a, a, a very kind of um, conservative 
uh, mindset with a desire not to be involved in, in in problematic situations. Of course, it was the most easterly city in Western Europe, so it butted up against the Iron Curtain as we understood it. And it was in 1973 that, that Bruno Craxi, who we mention in the book, um, decided that Vienna had to be kind of shaken out of its stupor and once again assume its role as a, as a kind of global city. And, and he pursued this idea of hosting international organisations. So starting with the UN and then going on through, through OPEC and through many others, um, Vienna's become once again a centre for international intergovernmental organisations that are influential in the areas of human development, the areas of oil and energy, the areas of finance, the areas of dispute resolution. And Vienna is emerging now in 2016 into a new kind of global city in the Central European context, building upon its cultural legacy as a capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Empire, but becoming a, a city uh, uh, which is nearly 50% migrant in, in its background, a city that hosts international and diplomatic activities, and a city that's once again becoming a, a, a hub or a magnet for higher education from all over Europe. And then there's a city that most citizens of the United States don't think of as a global city, but at Toronto as an example. Well, t Toronto, I think, is a, is a fascinating city. Of course, um, it makes a little bit of money moonlighting as New York in various <laughs> films. And of course, people in the US see that and, and observe it. But uh, it's important to remember that the Canadian financial system didn't have the same kind of crisis that the US and the, the British systems had. And Toronto emerged as the hub of the financial services sector of Canada, very strongly out of that crisis. Toronto also has fantastic higher education facilities and it attracts global talent from every corner of the world and has become a, a, a hub of enterprise and everything else. But it's also um, a city that's rapidly adopted new technologies. So it's, if you like, in, in our model, it's halfway between being an established world city, it's the, it's the business capital of Canada, and on the other hand, it's one of these new world cities that's specialising in medicine, life sciences, digital technologies, earth sciences, and convergence technologies, the things that are important for the environment. But I think the story that one needs to know about Toronto is the uh, as it were, the, the opportunist strategy around geopolitics. Because I think the thing that made the biggest single difference to Toronto's development as a global city was the secessionist movement in Quebec and the desire by both businesses and talented individuals back in the 60s and the 70s to escape the risk of seceding from Canada. And Toronto, as it were, accidentally had a huge windfall of uh, business headquarters, financial institutions, higher education institutions as well that moved there to avoid being in, in a francophone North American mm. nation. And as a result, I think, Toronto then used that as a spur to build up its claim to be one of the global cities of today. And if you look at that combination of Canadian immigration policy with Ontario quality of, of housing, healthcare, schools, infrastructure, and you put that together with the multicultural cosmopolitan buzz that Toronto as a city has, actually you've got a recipe for something very successful. 
And then in the United States, as an example, San Diego? Well, San Diego is a fascinating city because I imagine that within the U.S., its reputation is one of being, you know, a fabulous place to visit. It's It's got a wonderful climate, superb location, and you can go to Tijuana at the same time. So who wouldn't want to go to San Diego? But behind that sort of popular image, there's a very serious city lurking, and it's a city that's... Um, really developed its expertise in the areas of uh, oncology and medical science, in the areas of oceanography, maritime technologies, these sorts of things, obviously alternative sources of energy. And you can see when you look at the history of San Diego that you know the legacy of the initial discovery of this amazingly fruitful place by, of course, the, the padres who discovered it, led then to a, a port city. The port city was involved in trade, Port City became a military hub for the U.S. military. There was an institutional and a technological endowment that came from the military. Um, the climate produced this open lifestyle that made people flexible and, and interested in technology. And gradually, San Diego has built uh, an innovation ecosystem that enables it to be really at the cutting edge of discovery, both in medicine and in energy and in maritime science. And that's a very important combination to have uh, at a time like this when the world needs those sorts of things. So San Diego is a new world city and it's becoming very much a cosmopolitan place. And my feeling is that uh, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, the very thing that people find curious about it, which is its close proximity to the Mexican border and its emerging partnership with Tijuana will actually become a huge strength in a, a city, a region that's able to span a national border and bring together, as it were, the opportunities of a high science city with a great manufacturing city in Tijuana and create something really rather unique. It could be one of the world's first uh, global city regions that's in two different nations. The book, Global Cities, A Short History, is available on our website. Still have some holiday shopping to do? Check out the holiday bundles from the Brookings Institution Press. The perfect gift for the bookworms, policy wonks, and news fiends on your list. Each bundle comes with a Brookings tote bag and three of our best-selling titles. Learn more at brookings.edu slash holiday hyphen bundles. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. Then I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. I'm working to get all of them aired on the show. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews, and design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. Basim Maliki is our awesome intern this fall and has helped with all the shows since September. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. And visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>